We are in the month of Elul. This is the month that precedes Rosh Hashanah, the new year, and Yom Kippur. Of course, this is a time of preparation. We are getting ready for the high holidays. We're trying to get oriented. We're trying to realign ourselves to make sure that we are ready for these days of awe, these days of judgment, these days of goodwill, these days of repentance. And during this month, the month of Elul, of course, there are many things that we do to try to get in the right frame of mind for these awesome days that are upcoming. Sephardic communities have already been saying slichos, which are special prayers, since the first day of Elul, the Ashkenazic communities begin the week prior to Rosh Hashanah. There are special prayers that we add many times a day or several times a day. The shofar is blown every morning. Of course, the mitzvah of shofar is actually on Rosh Hashanah, but to prepare for Rosh Hashanah during the month of Elul, we blow the shofar every morning. Now, the Midrash gives us some context about this month. The Jewish people left Egypt The splitting of the sea happened seven days later. They started eating manna, and they coalesced around the mountain, Mount Sinai. And the most dramatic event in all of human history happened. An entire nation is temporarily elevated to the level of prophecy, and they witness and they experience the Ten Commandments from God. And the following day, Moshe ascends the mountain, tells the nation to hang tight, He's going to get the details of the revelation. He's going to get the content, the body, the substance of the Torah, not just the Ten Commandments, the outline, the framework, but everything. And he's also going to get the the tablets, which are going to be a permanent testament to this monumentous event. He ascends the mountain, tells the nation he'll be back in 40 days. There's a miscalculation. And the nation is waiting for him on day 40. He doesn't come. They are led to believe that he dies, and they panic, and they make a golden calf. When Moshe actually does return, there is revelry and celebration around this golden calf. Of course, it's totally sacrilegious. It's totally inappropriate for the nation and their standing. He takes the tablets. He shatters them in the ground. He takes the golden calf, grinds it into powder, puts it in the water, makes the nation drink. He tells the Levites, let's go kill all the perpetrators. And he begins a second day, a second stint of 40 days where he ascends and he prays, requesting, beseeching the Almighty to allow the nation to endure, to allow the nation to continue to forgive them for this terrible sin. So Moshe goes up for the first time, 40 days, to receive the Torah, to get the tablets. That is aborted. He does it again, and then God tells him, I want you to craft for me two more stones. We're going to do this again. We're going to have the second tablets. And ascend a third time, and we're going to have a redux of what we did last time. And this time, please God, the nation will not sin. There won't be a second golden calf, but there will be a second set of tablets, and the nation will endure. Moshe went up to heaven for the third time, the third 40-day stint, on the first day of Elul. And over the course of those 40 days, from the first day of Elul until Yom Kippur, when Moshe descended with the second set of tablets, the nation 
every morning heard the shofar. And that was a way to remind them about their mistakes of the past and to ensure that they don't repeat said mistakes again. And every year since, for these 40 days, from the first day of Elul until Yom Kippur, we try to relive what happened during the first Elul. Just as the Jewish people blundered, we may have blundered. We may have caused ourselves to be distant from our Creator. We may have had incredible opportunities. He gave us tablets. He gave us Torah. He gave us love. He cared for us. He did so much good for us. And we rebelled. And we veered off course. And we sinned. And we allowed the Yetzirah to run amok. And we corrupted and sullied our soul with sin. But just as the Jewish people were given a second chance, they were given this month to cleanse and to uplift, we too can do the same. And we too can arrive at Yom Kippur cleansed as if it never happened. The tablets are once again in our possession. That is the theme of these 40 days. And there's a deep insight here. The first Elul, the first time that these 40 days were observed, there was closeness. There was goodwill. There was a bond between the nation and the Almighty, notwithstanding the fact that it came in the aftermath of the golden calf. Notwithstanding the terrible mistakes, the terrible sins, the terrible blunders the nation made, the same goodwill, the same closeness that existed prior to the sin existed during the first Elul. And this is why there's such an emphasis over the course of history and in the prayers and in the communities to actually realize the power of this month, of the of these 40 days, really, because the month goes all the way, or the, the experience, these 40 days go all the way through Yom Kippur, to try to do it properly, to try to tap into the incredible power and opportunity that is given to us to make sure that we too have a productive month of Elul and we're ready for Rosh Hashanah and we're ready for Yom Kippur and we're going to have, please God, an incredible year upcoming. The word Elul, the commentaries note, the gematria, the numerical value, of course, every letter in Hebrew has a corresponding number. And there's this whole idea, this whole domain, a whole discipline of gematria where you take a word and you calculate its its numerical value and there are other words that have the same numerical value and that is not a coincidence because if a word matches another word in numbers, it's because there's some sort of connection between the two. The commentaries note that the word Elul matches the word Chaim, which means life, but it also matches the word halal, which means corpse. Elul in the, is the month of polarity. On one hand, there's the option of life. There's the option of dynamism, of growth, of elevation, of transformation, of refinement. On the other hand, we know the judgment of Rosh Hashanah is who will live and who will die. And there are different books that are open before the Almighty. And there's the potential of, God forbid, having a bad verdict on Rosh Hashanah. And this is all determined in Elul. Are we going to choose this option or that option? 
we get to decide. Now, what I want to focus on today is how do we make something of our Elul if we're not going to do it in the highest and best fashion? And what I mean by that is that I've seen, I've witnessed people that take this really, really seriously. I've seen people that the whole month, they are in a different state of mind and they're focused and they're not distracted and they have a gravity to them and they have a constant present of mind and they have a constant presence of mind about them the whole month. My grandfather, blessed memory, over the course of the month of Elul, you couldn't talk to him. He was focused. He was in a, a different world. He wouldn't talk about any trivialities over the course of this month. And actually, people don't know this, but my grandfather did not 40 days of Elul. He did 80 days. And the reason why is because the the Musser masters, they never expected their students to do something that they themselves did not experiment with. They never preached what they themselves don't practice. And therefore, my grandfather, blessed memory, before the month of Elul, when you have 40 days of preparation, of focus, of intensity, he wanted to make sure that he did a dry run, so to speak, of Elul by himself, just to know that everything that he's going to be asking of his students, he himself did. So for 40 days before Elul, he was already in the Elul mode. And we have manuscripts of the speeches, of the discourses, of the lectures that he gave over the course of many, many, many years in his yeshiva. And every Elul, he would give 15 to 20 speeches. And it was all on one theme, building upon successive speeches, building on on, on themes that progressed towards a grand finale, a grand culmination on Yom Kippur. And we have dozens and dozens of these incredible, almost like dissertations of Elul that he would give. The funny story is that uh, 19 years ago, my oldest brother had a baby girl. Wonderful. And uh, he went to my grandfather, blessed memory. This was the last year of his life. And he asked him, well, what should I name my daughter? And he says, well, she was born in the month of Elul. Call her Elula, which is hysterical because that's not even a name. And I wasn't even sure if he was choking or not when I heard this story. It's possible, what I think is, that he was just so consumed with this month that that's the only thing he could think of. A name? Okay, it's Elul. That's what we do. That is a level of preparation and focus and intensity of the month of Elul that I don't expect any of us to have. We're just not on this level, and few are. But what can we do to have a more productive Elul? You want to have an uplifting, a beneficial Elul. You want to do something. Is there is there a cheat sheet? Is there a way that we can have Elul without all that intensity? What about us, simpletons, lay people? We're not prepared. 
we're not maybe even deserving. We're not going to prepare as rigorously as maybe some of the great giants of yore. What can we do to have something, to have a touch point with Elul? How do we have some sort of preparation for Rosh Hashanah? What can we do during these days to get in the right frame of mind and to have some takeaway, some benefit from these auspicious days? That's the question I want to answer today. Now, the sages find many hints for the concept and the month of Elul in Scripture, even though the word Elul is not actually a term that originates in the Jewish language, in Hebrew, this name was adopted from the Babylonians. But nevertheless, the sages found all sorts of hints in Scripture for this month and what it pertains, what, what, what it invokes. And of course, that's not a shock. We know that the Torah forecasts all of human history, past, present, and future. And thus, it should be no surprise that El appears as well. But the sages point to specific verses that hint at the word Elul and also at the, the main elements, the main focused, focused areas of the month of El. And for us, when we just see where the sages found reference points for Elul, that can give us something to work on. And we're going to focus on three specific verses that refer to three domains, three areas three disciplines where we can make an emphasis either in one or in all three to have a more productive and uplifting Elul. The first reference is found, say just point to, Devarim, chapter 30, verse 6. The verse is talking about repentance. And it's talking about the circumcision of the heart. And the verse says, Hashem, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. S levavcha ve'es levav. If you take the first letter of these four successive words, S levavcha ve'es levav. Aleph, lamed, vav, lamed. That spells Elul. The verse is talking about repentance, circumcision of the heart, cleansing of the heart from all its contaminants. And the verse says, es levav chav es levav. And the first letter of those four successive words spell out the word Elul. So Elul is hinted to in Devarim chapter 30, verse 6. Song of Songs, chapter 6, verse 3. Ani ledodi vedodi li. I am to my beloved and my beloved is to me. Again, four successive words. The first letter of each of these words is Aleph, Lamed, Vav, Lamed, Ani, Lododi, Vododi, Li, spells out the word Elul. The connection that we can have with the Almighty. I am to my beloved and my beloved is to me. There is a certain mutual bond that exists between me and my beloved. And that hints and invokes at Elul. And finally, in the book of Esther, Chapter 9, verse 22, it's talking about how we observe the Purim holiday. And the verse says, these are days of festivities and joy, and we give gifts, umashloach manos, we give gifts, ish le'reyu umatanos le'evyonim, a man to his fellow, 
and gifts to the poor. Ish lereeu umatanos leavionim, the first letter of those four successive words, Aleph, Lamed, Vav, Lamed, spells out the word Elul. So in these three different contexts, we read about Elul. And the commentaries note, when it talks about circumcision of the heart, that's a reference to repentance. That is one of the themes, one of the three main pillars of this month. And then when it says, I am for my beloved and my beloved is for me, that's a reference to prayer. The touch point of us and God. And finally, when it talks about gifts from one fellow to another and gifts to the poor, that's a reference to charity. And we know these three things are not arbitrarily selected. The Talmud says, if someone has a bad decree, if there's an evil decree looming above a person, there are three things that annul that decree. Three things and only three things. And they are repentance, prayer, and charity. Repentance, prayer, and charity. That is the cheat code for the month of Elul. And again, the word Elul is hinted to, it's actually hinted to more as we shall see. But in three places, the sages point out, when it talks about repentance, it says Elul. It, t- it hints it to in the verse. Why? Because that annuls the decrees. When it's talking about prayer, it hints to Elul because that annuls decrees. When it's talking about charity and gifts from one to another, from people to the poor, that is a place, an apt place to invoke the month of Elul. Of course, over the course of our prayers on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, there is a very famous refrain, tshuva, repentance, tefillah, prayer, utzedakah, and charity. They abolish the evil decrees. So for us, we're not so ready. We're not so focused. We're not in the zone. There are other things that maybe occupy our interest and our mind. If you want to dive into Elul, you want to have a certain framework, you want to simplify it, here we have it. Three things, repentance, prayer, and charity. These are three areas where we can make a move in this month. Now, obviously, these are huge subjects, and you likely can spend a lifetime trying to study even one of them and trying to improve in one of them. But today, I want to go through them one by one, just touch upon them, and I want to try to find a common thread amongst these three. And again, the Talmud says that there are three themes that remove the evil decree. These are the three themes. And these are the three things that we're told, this is what you focus on on Elul. And we know Rosh Hashanah is upcoming. This is the day of the decrees being written down, inscribed. And Yom Kippur, the last day of the 40-day stint of Elul, that's when it gets sealed. And we want to have a positive outcome. We want to abolish any bad decrees. And the month of Elul, well, that's how you prepare. And how do you prepare? In these three areas. And I want to focus specifically on our theme for the day, and that is that we're not going to spend 80 days speaking about nothing besides four productive things. It's just not going to be something that I think is reasonable for us. You know, we're, we're simple people. We're regular people. We're lay people. And if you're not, okay, so then maybe this is not for you. If you're someone who could say, for 40 days, I'm not going to even talk about anything that's not Torah-related or prayer-related, 
and I'm going to say the Psalms every day, and I'm going to walk around with a with a gravity to me, as if there's this looming judgment before God, and I can actually live it. That's great. But what about us? We're not as prepared. Maybe we haven't thought about it. Yes, we hear the, the show for every morning. That's great. But that's like a moment of inspiration. And then we go on into our, to our regular lives. We're not so righteous. We're not so pious. We're not like the greats, the giants of yore. We're not so deserving. In these three areas, we find a common theme. That we too, all of us, we can have a connection to these three life-extending, decree-abolishing qualities. Even if you're unprepared, even if you are undeserving, you too can employ these three elements and have a very productive Elul, a very transformational Elul, and any evil decrees that you may be facing, that we may be facing, with the help of the Almighty, we will, please God, abolish them. So let's begin. Repentance. Elul is about repentance. The verse says, Hashem your God, Devarim chapter 30, verse 6, Hashem your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants. Your heart, your soul may be all clogged up. Your soul may be sullied and there may be all sorts of sin and Yetzirah there that's obstructing. But that can be removed. You pray, you take a step. You repent, you take a step towards God. You come to purify And this is the time where he will respond in kind. And obviously, these are days of repentance. And Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, the 10 days from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, these are called the 10 days of repentance. That's when we reach the crescendo of Elul. And that's, these are days of repentance. But I can tell you that there is repentance And then there is repentance. There's a book, which is the authoritative book on repentance, called Sha'arei Tshuva, The Gates of Repentance. And I would suggest if you ever get a chance to maybe peruse it. But it is a methodical and painstaking way to repent for every little flaw that you may have. Anything in general, anything in particular, And it could be viewed as cumbersome because there's so much. You really have to dedicate everything to do it. But there's a cheat sheet. Even the underdeveloped, even the undeserving, even the underprepared. Repentance is even for us. But what if someone's a sinner and they did terrible things and their hearts all clammed up? Repentance works for them as well. Think about it. What happened on the first Elul, the Jewish nation, who did the worst sin of history? The golden calf, that only rivals one other sin, the sin of Adam. We can fathom how much of a violation, of a repudiation that that was. And that sin was cleansed during this month of Elul. And just as prior to the sin of the golden calf, there was goodwill, there was closeness 
between the nation and God, Elul restored that closeness and that goodwill as if it never happened. If that sin can be cleansed, all sins can be cleansed. And the Ram tells us, even if someone sins their entire lives, and on the day that they die, they repent, and they die amidst repentance, all their sins are forgiven. So you can have a sinner, and their whole life they're a sinner, really not deserving, really not prepared. And the power of repentance applies even to them. The Talmud says that all murder, all murder is murder. Even if maybe it's something that we'd say, well, that's not so bad. And the Talmud gives an example. Talmud says, suppose there's a man who's dying or a woman. And you, or not you, someone just takes their thumb and just closes their eyelids. Says the Talmud, if you expedited their demise by a second, you are a murderer. Now again, someone like that would not get executed for a variety of reasons, but that is murder. Terrifying. And I read an interesting theory. Why is it so bad? Because the value of one second, one second, in that one second you could have repented, i.e. the terminally ill patient could have repented and could have changed everything, their whole life. They may have done a billion sins over the course of their life and with one second of repentance, they could have had all their sins forgiven. Repentance, it's not limited for the righteous, the prepared, the deserving. It's for us. And there's all sorts of lists in the Talmud, other literature, about really, really wicked people who repented and were accepted. Mass murderers, those who caused the masses to sin, idolatrous kings and the like. No matter how far someone is, no matter how vile and unconscionable the behavior may have been, even for them, so long as you're alive, the eyes are still open, there's still a little flicker of life within you, you can still repent. And it works for all people, for all sins. The Arizal found another inference for the word Elul. In the first verse of Parsha's bow, before the seventh plague, after the sixth, before the seventh, God tells Moshe, go to Pharaoh, because I have made his heart heavy and the heart of his servants. Es libo, the es lev avadav. His heart Aleph Lamed, Es Libo, Ve'es Leif. There's a hint to the word Elul in Pharaoh. In the month of Elul, even someone as far off the reservation as Pharaoh, they too can repent 
on this month, and they too can change. Now, it is true that to do full, full, complete repentance, you have to follow all the details. But repentance is not an all-or-nothing proposition. Even if someone does any little bit of repentance, that works. The Sadist tells us that there are four different components of repentance. But unlike other mitzvos that have four elements to them, if you do one, you do two, you do three, it still works. Tzitzis, you have to have four corners. You have three, or you have five for that matter. You haven't fulfilled any bit of the mitzvah. Zero percent. Your tefillin has to have four compartments, four scrolls. You have three, you've done nothing. Repentance. There are multiple components. There's regret. There's changing your behavior. There's confession. There is commitment to the future. You do one, that counts. That registers. You do a little bit, it registers. You do a little bit and you repent, but somehow later on you relapse. It doesn't matter. Repentance is also for us. And if we want to improve over the course of this month, this is one area that we should focus on. That's repentance. What about prayer? Elul is a time to improve our prayer. The verse says, Ani l'dodi v'dodi li. There is a connection that we can have with the Almighty. He loves us. We love Him. Prayer and its role in our lives cannot be overstated. And again, just as was true with repentance, it works for everyone. Even the undeserving. Even the unprepared. The verse says, Psalms 145, verse 18. We say this, of course, in Ashrei. Karov Hashem lechol karav. God is close to all those who cry out to Him. Provided, lechol asher yikru'uhu be'emes. Provided that you reach out to Him with truth. Everyone. And when I say everyone, I mean everyone. So long as there is sincerity, as there's a genuine heartfelt, real cry out to God, prayer works. But what if they're a sinner? What if they've done terrible things? What if they're weak? doesn't matter. Prayer works for everyone. This cheat sheet, it's really a cheat sheet. Because you again, you can be undeserving, and not righteous, and it doesn't matter. After the high priest finished his work on Yom Kippur, he had a prayer that he said. And part of the prayer was to thwart and foil someone else's prayer. How so? Part of the prayer is that the passerby's prayer should be ignored. If you're walking, you're trudging along, the last thing you want is rain. You don't want the roads to get all muddy and you'll get all wet. So the passerby is praying, Hashem, please, God, no rain. And everyone else benefits from rain. So we have a conflict. On one hand, God is being petitioned for rain by everyone else who wants rain so that they can have food. They could have Life, 
I have one person who's saying I don't want rain because I don't I don't want to be made uncomfortable by rain. So the high priest prays on Yom Kippur that the prayer of the passerby should not be accepted. Why? Because one prayer of some yokel, as they say, who's who's walking around, doesn't want to get wet. That's so powerful. It can torpedo everyone else. The Talmud says that even a thief who was burrowing into someone's house, an intruder, their prayer also registers. When Korach launched his rebellion against Moshe and against God, really, Moshe prays, don't accept his prayer. Someone as evil, as corrupt as Korach, their prayer also works. The Talmud tells us that the accidental murderer, someone who kills accidentally, so it's not a capital crime, but they have to go into exile. They have to go to the city of refuge. And they only are allowed to leave when the high priest dies. So Talmud tells us that the mother of the high priest, she would bake cookies and buy sweets and visit the cities of refuge and hand them out to all the accidental murderers. Why? So that they shouldn't pray that the high priest dies. If you're an accidental murderer, you want to get out. You want to leave this. It's like a, it's a very large open air prison. Yes, you have all the amenities of a big city there, but you want to leave. You want to go visit Italy. You want to go travel. You want to go back to your home, hometown. So you may have an urge to say, you know what? The high priest, let him get some heart trouble, maybe a tumor, something. A stroke. Something, something. Psyche out of here. So the mothers of the high priest would come and they'd give cookies and they'd smile and chat with you and hear, how you doing? To prevent the prayer, people from praying, to stop them from praying. You know why? I can't make this old lady sad. But evidently, a murderer, again, accidental murderer, but a murderer nonetheless, if they would pray to have the high priest die, that would be an efficacious prayer. Again, no matter how corrupt the prayer may be, no matter how corrupt the person presenting the prayer may be, it's powerful. It's effective. And it almost works indiscriminately. And if you want to stop it, you have to make sure that you stop it. Prayer is that powerful. And we're told that this is one of the main themes of Elul, and it's how you forestall a bad decree. The Talmud gives a wonderful story about someone who was doomed. They were doomed to die young. Why were they doomed to die young? Because they were cursed. Because they were a descendant of the house of Eli, Eli the high priest. And regarding this family, it says that it won't work. Sacrifices, offerings, nothing will work. Everyone in this family will die young. 
Talmud actually gives an amusing story. Uh, rabbi Kahana was praying. And the other rabbi, Rabbi Chia, was also praying there. And there are rules governing whether or not you're allowed to walk in front of someone who's praying. So the Rabbi Chia finishes his prayer, and he's waiting for the other rabbi to finish his prayer so that way he can traverse in front of him. You can't walk in front. Someone's praying, you can't walk in front of them. So he sits down and says, oh, well, it'll be a minute or two, right? An hour later, he's still praying. He finally finishes his prayer and he says to him, I'm older than you. I'm superior to you as a sage. Why did you cause me so much pain? I have to sit around to wait for you to finish praying. So he says to him, listen, I'm a descendant of Ailey and I know I'm going to die young. I know that. It's, there's no way to avoid it. Sacrifices won't work. Offerings won't work forever. But prayer will work. And that's what I'm doing. When he heard that, he said, I'm going to pray for you as well. And that worked. The person was doomed to die young, lived a very, very long life. And even in his old age, the Talmud tells us, his fingernails, they remained red, which is a way of saying they they were vital and healthy. There was an evil decree that there's nothing you could have done about it. They all died young. Nothing? Eh, One thing. Prayer removes the evil decree. The Jewish people were slated to remain in Egypt for how long? For 400 years. That was the promise to Abraham. Ultimately, they left after only 210 years. Now, the verse says that they remained in Egypt for 430 years. I was trying to figure out how do we understand the original promise, the original prophecy, what actually happened, and what the verse says happened. So there are a variety of answers and reconciliations, but the Ramban, this is in chapter 12, verse 40 and 42 of Exodus, he says like this, the Jewish people were destined to be in Egypt for 400 years. In Egypt, They became sinful. They did idolatry. They did not circumcise. In his words, they were very evil and very sinful. And therefore, on top of the original 400, another 30 years were added. They were originally slated for 400, and due to their sinful behavior, 30 years were added. So why did they leave early? Because of prayer. They cried. And they prayed. And he brings four verses from Exodus. We talk about the, the, the intensity of the nation's prayer. They were not deserving of salvation. They were supposed to be there for much longer. But prayer changed everything. Again, People were not deserving. They're sinful. They didn't even circumcise. The first mitzvah of Abraham they repudiated. But nevertheless, prayer is that powerful. The verse tells us in Psalms, I am Hashem your God who took you out, who ascended you from the land of Egypt. Open up your mouth and I will fill it. Open up your mouth. Now, what does that even mean? 
And the, the, the verse seems to have a very unusual segue. God took us out of Egypt. Okay. What does that have to do with opening up our mouth and he will fill it? Commentaries tell us the Exodus was salvation. Salvation for the undeserving and the unrighteous. And how'd that happen? That happened with prayer. And therefore, the verse is telling us, open up your mouth, pray, and God will fill it. God will completely give you whatever you ask for. As evidenced by the fact that he does that. Look at what happened in Egypt. The unrighteous, the sinners, the idolaters who didn't even circumcise. They almost completely forgot who they were and what their destiny was. And therefore, you too should open up your mouth. God will fill it. You too are eligible. But again, it has to be sincere. It has to be heartfelt. There is a major emphasis in the literature about a level of prayer that results in tears. Such a prayer is unstoppable. The gates of the heaven, the gates of prayer may close, but this high level of prayer that results in tears never does. Such a prayer cannot be stopped. The Midrash says that even in Gehenna, the sinners who cry have a chilling effect, quite literally, in their torment. Esav, the worst of the worst, he had three tears in the aftermath of the blessings going to Jacob. He cried. And in that merit, he earned, he merited Mount Seir, which is one of the most choice pieces of real estate ever. Prayer. Sincere, heartfelt, genuine, real prayer. Even for us who may be unprepared, not deserving, this works for everyone. And this is one of the focuses of the month of Elul. God is there. He, he wants to hear our prayer. If we pray and make a real, don't ritualize prayer. I don't want rituals. It's not a relationship of you to your beloved if it's a ritual. Don't ritualize prayer. It's real. It's genuine. It's heartfelt. It comes from the heart. Nothing stops it. And finally, the third element of Elul is charity and kindness. Elul is a time for charity and kindness. Again, the verse says, A man to his fellow and gifts to the poor. And that spells out the word Elul. And there's a whole chapter in Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, about the power of charity. It's a mitzvah to give charity. And there's also a prohibition to ignore charity. And if someone, God forbid, ignores charity... They're like an idolater. And no one will ever become impoverished from giving charity. And nothing bad and no damage will happen to a person if they give charity. And if someone gives charity and they are merciful, that begets divine mercy. If you are merciful upon others, God will be merciful upon you. And then he tells us, tzedakah, charity, it annuls evil decrees. 
And then he adds, for good measure, and it makes you rich. And there's only one area where you are allowed to test God, and that is here. If someone tithes, they will become rich. Nowhere else are you able to test God. And there's a verse in scripture, Tzedakah Tatzil Mimavis. Tzedakah charity spares a person from death. And again, like what's true with the other two, the power of charity is not reserved for the righteous. Even the undeserving, even the unprepared can deploy this tremendous tool. The Talmud, this is the Jerusalem Talmud, Titus 1.4, it gives a remarkable story. There was no rain. There was a drought. And all the sages were praying it wasn't working. And one of the sages was told prophetically that there's a guy with the unusual name of Pentkaka. That's his name. Go to him. He prays, you'll have rain. So he went to this guy and he said to him, what's your story? And he says, Pent is from five. I, every day I do five cents. And it lists the sins that he did. This man was, his profession was prostitution. And he also had some sort of house of ill repute that he maintained. And he did all sorts of sins, the Talmud lists, all the terrible things that he would do. Five sins every day. It's not clear, like, why is this the guy to pray for us? All the sages, their prayer doesn't work, and his prayer is going to work. And the sage asked him, what merit do you have? And he said, I'll tell you the story. There was once a woman whose husband, poor guy, was imprisoned, and she couldn't afford to get him out of prison. And she said, okay, I will come. I will work for you. And he said, why are you, why are you going to work for us? And she told him the story. He says, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover your husband's expenses. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy him out of prison. And he sold a bunch of stuff and he gave her the money and she was able to save her husband. This act of kindness by this very low person, man of very low esteem, very low status, he did charity and that spared everyone. Micah, not the prophet, but the idolater, when the Midrash gives a list of 10 traitors to God, number one is Micah. And the Talmud asks the question, wait a minute, why was Micah? This is the one, again, in, in not the book of Micah, from the prophet Micah, but from the book of Judges, the one who did the idolatry and caused the Jews to worship idolatry. When the Talmud gives a list of people who lose their share in Olam Abba, it does not include this terrible sinner, Micah. Why not? And the Talmud says, yes, he was a terrible sinner. Yes, he did idolatry. Yes, he caused the nation to sin, but he did charity. And he did kindness. And he made sure there was food for everyone. Someone like that, he will be spared of that terrible decree. Charity saves a person from death. The Midrash brings an incredible story about a man who drowned. And Rabbi Tiva witnessed the guy drowning. He's dead. 
but we don't have a body, right? What do you do when there's no body? It's a problem. Because we don't have any physical evidence that he's dead. So is his wife allowed to remarry or not? If he gave her a divorce document, well, she's allowed to marry. If we have a dead body, she's allowed to marry. But what if we see him drowning, but his body could have gotten swept away into the sea? We'll never see it again. That was the case brought before the court. And Rabbi Akiva says, listen, I was there. I saw him. He's dead. And as they're talking, who walks up? This guy walks up. And he says the story. He says, listen, I'll tell you what happened. When I was being swept under the sea, I heard the waves talking to each other. And the waves said, this man cannot drown. I will lift him from this side. You will lift him from that side. Because he does charity. And when Rabbi Kiva heard that story, he quotes the verse, Proverbs chapter 10, Tzedakah, Tatsil Mimavis. Tzedakah saves a person from death. So we have three verses that invoke the word Elul. Devarim chapter 30, Es Levavcha Es Levav, that refers to repentance. Song of Songs, Ani Ledodi Vedodi Li, that refers to prayer. The book of Esther, Ish Lere'eu Umatanas Le'avyonim, that refers to charity and interpersonal kindness. These are the three things Talmud says, spare us from a bad decree, and even us, even if we're not prepared. We're not taking this as seriously as maybe others do, maybe as we ought to. Okay, I'm not judging. But even us, we have a portal, we have a path, we have a framework to have a very uplifting and productive Elul. Now we mentioned the accidental murderer who goes to the city of refuge, if they were to leave the city of refuge, then the Gol Adam, which is the the relative of the deceased, is allowed, even obligated, to kill him. So you have a city of protection, of refuge, and outside, death lurks. The commentaries note Exodus chapter 21, verse 13, it's talking about the accidental murderer who was not trying to kill someone. But the way it works, it just, it just happened that they happened to fit the guy. But the verse says, Someone who kills accidentally, and I will place for you a place, a, a refuge. But those four words the first letter of these four words spelled the word Elul. Just as the accidental murderer, they have some problems. They have some baggage. The city of refuge is salvation. Elul is a refuge for us as well. We may have done mistakes. We may have had some blunders in our past. But that's the power of this month to give us refuge and to spare us from what lies outside of it, to spare us from death. And it's not just salvation, it's also elevation. One final reference to the month of Elul is found in Vayikra, Leviticus, chapter 5, verse 7. Echad lechatas ve'echad le'olah. One for a chatas, one for a sin offering, and one for an elevation offering. Aleph, Lamed, Vav, Lamed, Echad, Lechatas, Ve'echad, Le'ola, spells out the word Elul. 
This tells us that El is not just about a sin offering, it's also an elevation offering. It's not just about removing the ill effects of sin, it's also about transformation and elevation. If we take this month and try to do what we can to have a productive month of El, and to focus on it to the best of our abilities, and to use the cheat sheet, the three areas, one or all three, it will not only spare us from the bad that we're trying to outrun and outpace and get away from, it will also result in elevation as well. This is a time of great transformation. What you can accomplish in one day will take you a very long time the rest of the year. It's a time of transformation, elevation, cleansing the nation. They were at the very low point. Again, there's, you can hardly think of a, of a worse rebellion against God than the golden calf 40 days after Sinai. They got past that and they had the goodwill as if it never happened. We can do the same, but let's prepare a little bit for this month. Let's take a little bit of messages of this month and please that we will have a very uplifting and transformational month and a terrific judgment, please God, on Rosh Hashanah, inscribed and sealed on Yom Kippur. And may it be a good year for us and for all of our brethren. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. And I want to hear your comments and your questions and your feedback.